Hello, my name is Dr. Chris Walensky, and I am a laser dentist. You're listening to the Laser 101 Podcast. Here with me today is Mr. James Carroll, the founder and CEO of Thor Laser. I've known James for quite some time now. I believe the first few times we met were at the ASLMS annual meeting, which is the American Society for Laser Medicine and Surgery. And now, unfortunately, they've completely eliminated dentistry from their programs, and it's become uh, almost completely uh, derm and ophthalmology. Anyway, James always stood out as someone I needed to know. And if you know James, you know what I'm talking about. And I feel really fortunate that now we speak fairly often regarding anything from his latest presentation to Congress to advice on personal matters. James, if I'm remembering correctly, I believe that one of Thor's main objectives is to become the standard of care for, what is it, 10 diseases in 10 countries within 10 years? Anyway, let's get right to it. James, welcome to the Laser 101 podcast. Thanks, Chris. And it's 100 diseases in 100 countries by the time I'm 100 years old. And you quoted the interim goal of 10 diseases, 10 countries, 10 years. Wow, 100 years old. That's very ambitious. I know that you're very busy. I appreciate you coming on here. I believe that you just finished a what would be called a tour from maybe the uh, north to the south of the east coast. Is that right? Uh, pretty much if you call New York the north, but it's um, it, yeah to uh, New York and Pennsylvania and uh, and uh, down to Miami Beach. <laughs> like I said, a very busy man because now I know you're back in the UK. Uh, I know that you're an engineer by training. You're not a dentist. Can you describe where it all started and how you got to this point? Um, so I started doing an apprenticeship in uh, audio electronics with a company called Audix, which were one of the main uh, suppliers to the BBC. And that started in 1978 for me. So that's an apprenticeship. Uh, it allowed me to experience every part of a manufacturing company through everything from sweeping the floors as you do when you're a very junior, uh, taking old components out of circuit boards through to actually assembling circuit boards, then assembling sort of uh, large, uh, sort of, uh, I'm going to call it mainframe equipment, not like a, like a computer, but we used to put uh, amplifiers and mixers and things in racks, um, and then actually building prototype systems and designing prototype systems. And then I got into managing production and uh, ultimately, uh, the drawing office and sales departments, I worked everywhere. And it's like I was being prepared for this job. Then another friend of Kennedy and said, hey, how about we go into business and buy one of these franchises that uh, sell government grant information, half the grants the government offers are never taken up. We did that. One of my first clients was a laser company. And uh, that's when I first found out about photobiomodulation. That's 1987. And I went and sat in on a lecture with Mary Dyson, who was one of the four main editors of Grey's Anatomy. I saw what they were doing. She was just doing mice and rats and cell cultures. But there were other doctors there who were already using it. I could see they were healing up wounds that were never healing, uh, just hard to heal wounds. And I thought, this technology belongs in every corner of every department of every hospital in the whole world. I'm sure it's going to make it there within the next five years. Uh, uh, little did I know how hard it was to actually develop a new technology and get it to mainstream, but I gave up my job selling the franchise with the franchise, selling grant information, uh, and went to work for the laser company to sell their products for them. And then they went out of business a few years later. So I got together with two of their engineers, myself, and we started our first version of Thor in 1991. 
And that's how we got there. Wow. What a wild ride. You know, until you got to the part with the laser company, I was wondering how that would tie into PBM, but here you are. We called it laser biostimulation back in the 19, uh, 1980s. Yes, exactly. We did as well. It was biostimulation in dentistry too. I don't go back quite as far as you. I started around Y2K, but you really weren't involved in dentistry at that point either, I don't think. So uh, you seem to have been more involved in the medical aspects of PBM. Is that right? The first time I saw this technology was for wound healing. Later, found out it uh, was being used for musculoskeletal pain, so sprains and strains and creaky joints, back and neck pain, that kind of thing. Uh, then I think in the early 2000s, uh, a, a project funded by, well, it was a joint project between the FDA, uh, sort of biomedical uh, optics branch, and um, Juanita Anders, of course, who you will know, uh, bought one of our lasers and started healing spinal cord injuries with it in rats. Uh, and um, then uh, I began to see other people doing interesting things, putting light in the brain and LEDs in the in the eye. Uh, didn't get around to dentistry probably until I didn't really begin to notice it. I don't think until the mid the mid noughties, uh, I guess around two thousand five, two thousand six, something like that. We began to notice it, and uh, uh, Dabar, who you know uh, has, has been nagging me around then, say you got to pay more attention to dentistry, um, and you know, slowly it crept up on me that way. Uh, you know, that's funny because for years, only um, Arun and his wife, Rita, uh, were the only ones speaking on PBM and carrying the torch for that area of laser therapy. And then I met you at ASLMS, and I think it was within only two years, and everyone was talking about low-level lasers and the effects of PBM. And even now when I give my lectures, it might be an all-day lecture covering, you know, all the, the things we normally do. Hard tissue, soft tissue, perio hygiene, on and on. And at the end, you know, when, when some of the members of the audience, they come up to ask questions, all the questions are about this topic. So there's definitely a groundswell of interest. Okay, moving on. I know that PBM is a complex series of biological events. It's not just like, you know, shine the light and this is what happens. But some of these events are seemingly unrelated to the other events. Is there an abridged version of this that you can share with us or how it works or why it works so well? Just in case there's somebody on, on your podcast who's not heard of this before. So what is photobiomodulation? It's something that we've all seen on Star Trek. On Star Trek, when somebody gets injured and they go to the sick bay, the doctor gets out a laser beam, they aim the laser beam at the injury, and the injury, the tissues, the wounds, they heal, they regenerate instantly. So that is photobiomodulation. Okay. But it's not as fast as on TV. But you get the idea, we shine light on people and they heal more quickly. Uh, the um, uh, How it does it? Well, you know what they say, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And as your little bit of knowledge grows and gets bigger, it turns out what you don't know is expanding at the same rate. Yes. Uh, and the volume of what you don't know uh, seems to expand. And we thought we knew quite clearly how it worked. There was an early research in this field identified that cytochrome C oxidase, so cytochrome it suggests that something has color. Uh, so cytochrome C oxidase is also the you known is complex four in a mitochondria, the terminal enzyme with electron transport chain, responsible for taking up oxygen, and uh, that the oxygen helps take electrons off 
at the end of the electron transport chain through cytochrome oxidase, and therefore your mitochondria will start to make more protons that drive ATP synthase. So we get more ATP. So the first thing most people know about photobiomodulation is it seems to increase energy production or the energy currency called ATP. But there's a secondary benefit with that. It seems to make the mitochondria more efficient. So we get a reduction uh, in oxidative stress, which is usually the, when there's an overproduction of reactive oxygen species. Too many of them for too long uh, have bad effects. They lead to inflammation and cell death and stuff like that. And it seems that stressed cells that are producing too many reactive oxygen species that are far, produ being produced faster than the uh, then the body's natural antioxidant mechanisms can cope with uh, leads to inflammation and cell death, as I just described. So we get two things. We get more energy and we have less oxidative stress. And under those circumstances, tissues tend to heal more quickly. So that is not as short as I could have said it. I could have just said, basically, photobiomodulation increases energy, reduces oxidative stress, and things get better. But uh, <laughs> given that your audience will have done some sort of... Um, uh, I don't know, cell biology along the way. They will have heard of mitochondria. They will have heard of the electron transport chain. They will, might have heard of complex four on the cytochrome oxidase. Uh, and that was always seen to have been or believed to be the primary side of effect. These days, I use vaguer terms. I just say mitochondria have light receptive elements inside it. And when this mitochondria absorb this light, we get more energy, ATP, we get less oxidative stress. And stuff seems to heal more quickly. I think we now know that there's also effects on cell membranes that become more permeable to calcium ions. <laughs> James, I want to personally apologize to our listeners for the PTSD that James likely just triggered. Uh, James, just so you know, electron transport and cytochrome C oxidase and complex four will bring dentists back to a time that they would rather forget. I'm, I'm glad that we were at least able to spare you from thinking about the Krebs cycle. Uh, moving on, James, I know that your quest to make PBM available to the masses has brought you to really interesting places to make presentations. And, and I also know that like, you've been to the White House, you've, you've given presentations to U.S. Congress, to the U.N. What, what is their interest in this field? Well, it's a matter of who you know, really, and how they uh, have generate interest really so they they know people and so i know people who know people and then they say hey you've got to listen to this guy you've got to see what his vision is for this thing so at the time when i went to the white house and did the congress thing was uh, sort of the the first i suppose peak in uh, concern about the opioid crisis uh so looking for alternative forms of pain relief a lot of people who end up in, uh, uh, on uh, stuck on Opioids that have an opioid use disorder uh, start with having had possibly surgery and getting and uh, getting opioids postoperatively, and hopefully not. But unfortunately, too many times people with chronic pain uh, end up on NSAIDs, and that's not a great uh, road to be going down because uh, op opioids are um, uh, don't really uh, help. Well. They don't actually take away pain very well. They just stop you caring about your pain, they have a big effect on your emotional response to pain. If you hmm. listen to go to the website of the International Association for the Study of Pain, they will describe pain as an emotional response to a sort of a something like a noxious stimulus or whatever it is they say. Yeah, and opioids are very good at dealing with the emotional response, apparently. 
anyway, um, you shouldn't do be on it if you're in chronic. Uh, acute, uh, a short burst of opioids should be harmless, but too many people get stuck on them. And uh, so, you know, having finding an alternative was a hot topic, and uh, I had something to say about it. So I got an invite uh, to these places to go and. Wonderful. You know, I can see how this would tie into being an alternative for the treatment of pain and how it might impact the opioid crisis. So well done. Uh, another thing, I noticed something on your website that I've not seen before. I understand that as a device manufacturer, you need FDA clearance and CE clearance, but Thor has NATO clearance. What is NATO clearance? Uh, NATO. All right. So with NATO, um, they we've got a NATO part number for our products. So the the UK military, and as it happens, the US military, they're, they're not using our NATO clearance. But uh, yeah, we got a NATO part number for our products. So all of, all three forces in the UK uh, use our products. And actually, one of our biggest customers in the world, possibly becoming one of our, the biggest customer, is the US Navy SEALs and uh, uh, um, uh, Special Forces Warfare, uh, like using our products, particularly our whole body treatment system, where these uh, elite forces are obviously training hard and a bit like all the sports teams that buy this whole body treatment system, they use it to reduce delayed onset muscle soreness seems to reduce fatigue when they're training as well so they're buying this system as part of their um you know their physical development i can now declare it was a secret it's not a secret anymore but the uh us men's soccer team uh in qatar uh actually uh took two of our products out there with them they've been training with them uh for the purposes of having uh less fatigue uh and uh and fewer injuries, and that was their goal in taking it out there. So yes, the um, now major league soccer is involved, NFL, NBA, and, and oh, NHL. So these are all three-letter acronyms that we don't have in our country. I do remember when I was in Memphis, we had you out there to meet with the people at St. Jude, Belinda Mandrell, and some of the doctors out there. I have a distinct memory of you taking a phone call, and then you came in the room, and I don't remember which Olympics it was or which U.S. Olympic team it was. Maybe it was track and field, but I remember you had to send a whole body unit on a 747 to London or something like that. Yeah, no, it was Rio. Uh, it was the Olympic Games in Brazil. That's right. Yes, uh, that was for the running team. For that was Nike who wanted that. So they'd all, all their play, all their runners, all their middle and long distance runners. Uh, sponsored runners uh, were training and using our product as part of that. And uh, so that's that's true as well. That's so fascinating. And it did take somebody from uh, the US government to persuade somebody in the Brazilian government to let it in uh, without charging duty. It was only going to fly in for a certain amount of weeks and then come back out again. And it went in on a private jet. So... So in your opinion, what's the future of what Dr. Roberta Chow described as a new branch of medicine? Hmm. Before I get myself, uh, before I, I must, at some point I must use some of those FDA sort of disclosure words. And uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, that in the United States, there is no, given your audience is presumably mostly uh, in dentistry, there are no uh, cleared indications for use for this technology uh, in the United States. We don't have it. Nobody has it uh, for any indication involved in dentistry. The only indication for use we've got is for temporary relief of muscle and joint pain, muscle stiffness, 
uh, muscle spasm, pain associated with arthritis. So those are the only indications for use in the uh, in the United States with our products. And for most products in this field, nothing is approved for dentistry. Anybody who uses it outside of our indicated uses are using it off-label. But the, the future of it, well, as I used the words before, it belongs in every corner of every department of every hospital in the whole world. It sounds a bit far-fetched to say that, but which, if I was to stand outside a hospital and ask a doctor coming out, which of your patients in this hospital could do with a little bit more ATP and a bit less, oxi a bit less oxidative stress? Uh, and the answer will probably be, well, all of them. You know, there's, and now we know, and you would have thought, well, maybe not for depression or something, or I can't figure out yet how it might work in diabetes, or might it work for spinal cord injuries. But, you know, now... Uh, there's a huge interest academically at the research level for multiple different dis uh, dis disorders of the brain. Started with traumatic brain injury, then became uh, CTE, so chronic traumatic encephalopathy. So lots of little miniature brain injuries, as it were. Uh, but uh, depression, um, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's disease, uh, stroke. So a lot of air of academic, a lot of work academic work going on in those fields at the moment. I'm just starting at the head and just working my way down. Um, thinking of Harvard School of Public Health, they've been researching and still are researching use of photobiomodulation in the ear. Specifically, they're going for noise-induced hearing loss. They've shown in the lab that they can regenerate cochlear hair cells. So now they want to stick it into the ear canal and get it into the cochlea over at Stanford University. Uh, using our devices to work on um, age-related uh, hearing loss Obviously, now I'm thinking down through the brain. Oh, we should start at the top. I mean, a lot of devices you can see on SkyMail, if that magazine still exists. Uh, devices you can caps you can put on your head, and they put a bit of red LED light on. It helps you grow your hair. Uh, there's some evidence for that to say that that's true. Um, yeah, everything in and around the oral cavity which is a major area of uh, of interest for us now. Uh, the leading area of research is actually the treatment of oral mucositis, a side effect of high-dose chemotherapy or radiotherapy. Uh, there's 60 randomized controlled clinical trials already published on this. And uh, for those of you who don't know about oral mucositis, it's really debilitating, has a big impact on quality of life. These are patients who, if they get grade 3 or grade 4 oral mucositis, uh, they can't drink liquids, they can't uh, eat solid food if they get grade four. Grade three, they can uh, drink but not eat solid food typically. So it's uh, very painful, a huge hit on the quality of life. There's a lot of evidence for it's a recommended treatment in the UK by the uh, National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. It's recommended by the uh, Multinational Association for Supportive Care and Cancer in their clinical care guidelines. It's recommended by the Children's Oncology Group in the United States. Uh, it's enthusiastically used by uh, St. Jude Hospital and many other cancer hospitals uh, around the United States are really beginning to use it because it's so good at reducing pain and uh, reducing the inflammation, helping the ulcers heal. So there's one, and if it doesn't just work for one inflammatory, painful condition on the mouth, it would work for a wide range of them. Uh, I see uh, work being published on burning mouth syndrome, uh, temporomandibular joint dysfunctions, speeding up the movement of teeth, post-operative pain, uh, periodontal diseases. Uh, so, and I can tell you now that just uh, our, our friend uh, uh, Cesar has 
his uh, department recently got a $550,000 grant from NIH to use our lasers on TMJ pain. So there's a lot of application in and around the oral cavity. I mean, I suppose I'll finish on probably the, I think the most eye-opening area of interest is the effect it has on stem cells. When, uh, when we put light into bone marrow, and we do that transcutaneously, put light over the tibia, we can do it over the sternum, it gets absorbed by bone marrow, and there's a release in stem cells into the bloodstream, they circulate around, and where there's inflammation and trauma, they go and do their work. So they seem to be anti-inflammatory and tissue regenerative, and there's clinical evidence in humans in a randomized controlled clinical trial showing uh, in, a, in, a, in patients uh, with a heart attack, a percutaneous, uh, primary percutaneous coronary intervention required. Um, they're giving them photobiomodulation. This is in Tel Aviv, Israel. They put light into the tibias at, uh, at admission to hospital and the following two days. Uh, and uh, a week later, when they uh, do some blood tests, there's a 50% drop in troponin T and uh, in creatine kinase, uh, a marker for heart muscle damage. So it's so 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 Roberta Chow is right. It's got huge potential uh, in any organ, potentially of the body, if we can get the light there. Yeah, actually, one of the things you mentioned, treating the sternum or the tibia directly and affecting the stem cells. As a researcher, one of the challenges we face. Uh, I read a, I read quite a lot of um, split mouth studies where they're done by docs who don't realize that treating one side of the mouth will affect the other side as well, and obviously that affects the power of the study because now we need more subjects. And from a personal standpoint, you had mentioned uh, Cesar Migliorati, who's now down in Florida. He had done a lot of the groundwork in getting St. Jude to implement uh, PBM for the oral mucositis. And I was really happy to be part of finally getting that going. And now St. Jude has become the standard bearer in the use of PBM to treat the symptoms secondary to chemo and, and radiotherapy in a pediatric population. But while I was down there, at the same time, one of my colleagues at the university, their spouse had a bout with Bell's palsy, which we treated with light therapy daily for a week. And that patient reported that they had had Bell's palsy previously, which took months to resolve where after light therapy it took only weeks. We have video of it, it's remarkable. Uh, it was definitely life-changing for them and it continues to be life-changing for the head and neck uh, cancer patients or um, others who may be suffering from oral mucositis. <laughs> it sure beats just sucking on a popsicle. I'm now teaching in New York and one of the local hospitals is coming on board to add PBM for their protocols for treating their pediatric oncology and stem cell transplant patients to reduce or even prevent oral mucositis. But make no mistake, this is not just a pediatric treatment. We can treat adults as well. Well, we're coming to the end of our time here, James. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us? Um, yes, I think uh, just to let people know that it's that this, my, my goal of getting it established as a first-line medical treatment for 100 different diseases in 100 different countries by the time I'm 100 years old I mean, 100 years old, that's 40 years away for me. Uh, it's, it's not a long period of time left. It, the roadmap, unfortunately, is quite slow. It takes at least five years to get an indication for use out of FDA. Uh, there's, uh, it takes probably another five years to get a procedure code and, a, and CMS 
start reimbursing and then the private medical insurers join in with that. So it's a five to 10 year, more like a 10 year process for each disease. So we're gonna have to run multiples at once. So this is, I've set myself you know, a slightly ambitious goal there of achieving that. So it's a tough roadmap. Um, just to let you know that uh, wondering quite how big, I know it sounds fanciful when we've talked about so many pathologies already, in this field, there's already more than a thousand randomized placebo-controlled clinical trials on humans published in peer-reviewed medical journals already. Mm. Uh, there's more than uh, 9,000 academic papers published on this topic alone. There's typically uh, around 50 new papers a month coming out on this subject. Uh, and for our own products, we've already delivered 34 million treatments. And yet, we're still just getting started. That's incredible. Um, it is. The numbers papers. are great. Yes. Wow. A thousand RCTs, yes. 9,000 papers in total, academic papers on this subject. You know, I know that one of the frustrations among clinicians is how do we get paid for this? But I feel that their angst may be misdirected. It's not the fault of the insurance companies or the FDA or the ADA. Uh, because of my experience in the medical device industry, I think it comes back to the device manufacturers themselves. Is that fair? It's our responsibility. People think it's the fault of FDA. Um, it's not the fault of FDA. FDA, their doors are wide open. They're saying, come on, manufacturers, bring us the data, show us your product successfully treats this disease. And if the data is good enough, then we'll give you an indication for use. So if you go in there with TMJ pain, for example, as your as your as your uh, the, the if you're applying for that particular indication, yeah, if the data is good enough, they'll give us t uh, TMJ pain as an indication for use, and then we can go in and do anything else that I just mentioned, post-operative pain, if I want, or something to do with periodontal disease or burning mouth syndrome, or whatever it is. Uh, yes, but you've got to go in, you've got to bring the data in, and then they because they don't approve. Uh, therapies they don't approve diseases they approve products it's the product that gets the approval and it's not because they won't let it through it's because nobody in manufacturing has actually gone all the way there's quite a high bar to get you know it's not easy and that's probably why but yes it's down to manufacturers well james thank you so much for being our guest today it's always so great catching up with you and you know with your travel schedule that's not always an easy task i thoroughly enjoyed our discussion well, I enjoyed it too, and uh, I appreciate you inviting me on. Thank you, James. Please join us next time as we continue to explore the fascinating world of lasers in dentistry and the people who make it happen here on the Laser 101 Podcast. <laughs>